Nick, do you think that they're going to kick me out of fellowship next year when they realize that I don't know how to ultrasound? Faye, I have just the perfect resource for you. Check out the OBG Project's second trimester ultrasound atlas. Once you find your pictures, you can take a look at the OBG Project and they'll show you normal and abnormal images so you know exactly what you're looking for. I promise you'll look like a superstar. That sounds great. So the OBG Project is also offering fourth-year residents a whole year of their subscription process, OBG First, absolutely free, where you have access to the OBG Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas, as well as your very own library where you can store readings that you want to go back to. Again, check out our website, creeggsovercoffee.com. Look in the sidebar, figure out how you can get OBG First with the Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas absolutely free for one year as a chief resident. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us a very exciting guest, Dr. Jennifer Ding. Jennifer is a third-year obstetrics and gynecology resident with us at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University and Women and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm a huge fan of the show, and it's a real honor to be here. So, Jennifer, what will you be talking to us about today? So today, our topic is preventing preterm births, a huge topic. Yeah, not only a huge topic, but a timely topic. Um, so, Jennifer, we always start out with learning objectives, and you've got a couple crafted for us. Exactly. So today our learning objectives are going to be to understand the risk factors of preterm births, review guidelines for screening, both history indicated as well as universal, and then go over some of the evidence for available interventions. Okay, so let's start with why do we really care about preterm birth? Why is this an important topic? So preterm births are important because they are the leading cause of neonatal morbidity and mortality. As obstetricians, we take care of mom and baby, and we know that the younger the babies we send to the NICU, the more likely they, have, they are to have complications. No, absolutely. I mean, we've definitely, I think, all seen, you know, the consequences of preterm birth. And, you know, one of the things that we obviously want to try and do is prevent preterm birth. Um I guess, Jennifer, when we start out in the exam room or with prenatal care, what are the things that we should be focusing on that say, aha, this is somebody that I need to watch out for? Absolutely. That's a good segue into looking at known risk factors. So the biggest risk factor for preterm birth is having had one prior. That's mostly the case in obstetrics. So having had a preterm birth increases your risk of having a subsequent preterm birth by about one and a half to two times the increase and we know that preterm birth can recur in up to 50% of women. And when you go over someone's obstetrical history, it's important to not only know, oh, they've had a preterm birth, but also at what gestational age was the delivery and what was their most recent pregnancy outcome, a term or a preterm birth. So what are some other things that we could look for potentially in their history or even in exams that we do? Other things that we know can increase the risk of preterm birth are an incidentally found short cervix, which we'll talk a little bit more about in terms of how to screen, when to screen, who to screen. And then the other risk factors that have a little bit 
less of a strong correlation, but we know um, have been associated with preterm birth are things like chronic illnesses or more acute infections like UTIs, pyelonephritis, as well as a history of cervical procedures like leaps or cones. And then the other things that we think about that are associated with preterm birth are such things as low pre-pregnancy weight, smoking, substance use, and a short conception interval. All right. So coming back to the screening part, Jennifer, where you talked about ultrasound for just a second. I mean, we're all planning at least one day in our lives to be maternal fetal medicine specialists and learning how to ultrasound one of these days. But I think one of the most confusing things about identifying risk for preterm birth are all of the ultrasound criteria. Why don't you go over with us the screening criteria for risk of preterm birth? Absolutely. So we know that In terms of how to screen, at least, we know that transvaginal ultrasounds are much more reliable and reproducible than transabdominal ultrasounds. You want to do this when the patient has an empty bladder and that the ultrasound probe is not providing undue pressure on the cervix. And what you're looking for are three measurements between the internal and external os, and the final cervical length will be the shortest of those three. What we know about the cervical length is that if there is something like cervical funneling seen with a short cervix, that doesn't necessarily add additional risk on top of just the short cervix itself. Talking a little bit about screening and the information that you get from the cervical length. So in terms of a woman with a history of preterm birth, you definitely want to screen these women because they're more likely to have a short cervix and um, a risk of recurrence. And so for that, the recommendation is to start screening between 14 and 16 weeks and start with a cervical length every two weeks. If the cervix is noted to be less than three centimeters, the recommendation is to increase that interval to weekly. And if the cervix is known to be less than 25 millimeters, that's when someone might be eligible for an ultrasound indicated cerclage. In terms of universal screening, the recommendation is a little bit mixed, but most societies recommend consideration of a universal protocol, at least at your local institution, if there is something standardized that all patients can adhere to. Because even though you might have to screen thousands of women to really identify the few with an incidentally found short cervix, if someone has a cervical length of less than two centimeters or 20 millimeters, less than 24 weeks, then starting them on vaginal progesterone has been shown to decrease the risk of preterm birth in these women with incidentally found short cervix without a history of preterm birth. So I think this brings us to some of the treatments for um, preterm birth and potentially shortened cervix. And I know this has been more topical for us recently, but let's talk a little bit about progesterone supplementation. When do we do it? How do we do it? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I'm not sure how many people know about the recently published Prolong trial that we'll talk a little bit about, but this is definitely a timely topic. First, just to mention what I talked about earlier in terms of the incidentally found short cervix in terms of screening women who are asymptomatic and without a history preterm birth. If the cervix is less than 20 millimeters, then they can be started on vaginal progesterone. The form of progesterone that we are maybe a little bit more familiar with, McKenna or an IM progesterone injection given weekly. The original study that showed efficacy for the 17-OHP injection was the MICE trial published back in 2003, where they demonstrated that for a woman with a history of preterm birth before 37 weeks, doing weekly um, progesterone injections was able to 
decrease the rate of recurrent preterm birth less than 37 weeks. They recruited 463 women and actually stopped the study early, earlier than planned, because at their interim analysis, they were able to already demonstrate efficacy of this study. Interestingly enough, while we all think of 17-OHP as the standard of care, the FDA really only gave it conditional approval in 2011 pending this subsequent larger study that would further kind of confirm its efficacy. So the prolonged study that just came out recruited women between 2009 to 2018, and it was a bigger cohort, so 1,700 women. We'll talk a little bit more about demographic differences later. And their two co-primary outcomes were the rate of preterm birth less than 35 weeks, as well as composite neonatal morbidity. And interestingly enough, they really didn't find any difference in the rate of recurrent preterm birth less than 35 weeks between the placebo arm and the arm that got the 17 OHP shots. Their recurrence rates were only about 11% in each arm, and when they looked at the rate of preterm deliveries less than 37 weeks, which was the primary outcome of the 2013 trial, there was no difference in the recurrence rates either, about 22% for less than 37 weeks. The points of contention regarding the prolonged trial is that there's really a lot of demographic differences between these two cohorts. The 2003 study had a population that had a higher baseline risk of recurrent preterm births. So women who had more than one preterm birth, about a 60% African-American population, whereas the prolonged trial recruited only about 25% of patients in the United States, again, since it's sort of considered a standard of care by a lot of obstetricians and mostly recruited in Eastern Europe. And the population was 90% white, 7% black, and with lower rates of smoking, substance use, and more than one preterm births. So one could argue that perhaps 17-OHP might be more efficacious in a population that has a higher risk of preterm birth. But right now, it's an interesting time because the FDA advisory committee just voted a 9 to 7 vote to withdraw McKenna from the market. The SMFM statement right now recommends shared decision making between provider and patient due to this conf- uh, contradictory evidence. Right now we know that or at least short-term safety has not given us any pause to give 17 OHP, so studies are pending in terms of its long-term safety and obviously its um, efficacy going forward. Thanks, Jen, for that excellent summary of all the recent data. Um, so just to summarize for sort of the baseline recommendations, vaginal progesterone is recommended with someone with no prior spontaneous preterm birth with an incidentally identified shortened cervix less than 20 millimeters. And then intramuscular progesterone at least the party line right now is recommended in somebody who has a prior history of spontaneous preterm birth prior to 37 weeks, though that may be changing pending interpretation of prolong um, vis-a-vis the FDA recommendations. Does that sound about right? Thank you for that very elegant summary. Um, So Jennifer, let's move on to other treatments. Um, So in some patients, they may have a cerclage. Can you help us elucidate who should be getting cerclages and who shouldn't? 
Absolutely. So right now, the way I think about indications for cerclage are three buckets, the history-indicated cerclage, the ultrasound-indicated cerclage, and the exam-indicated cerclage. So first, to talk a little bit about the history-indicated cerclage, this is, again, where your history-taking at your first OB visit is really important. And here, you're trying to identify someone who's had a history of either pre-viable or periviable delivery in the setting of painless advanced cervical dilation. And it's really hard to to exclude by history the women who either had preterm labor at this time, abruption, PPROM, infection. Hospital records may be helpful in terms of cooperating the history provided by the patient, but these are patients you're really trying to identify who had painless advanced cervical dilation. Secondly, those who would be beneficial for an ultrasound-indicated cerclage are women who've had a history preterm delivery less than 34 weeks and who during their cervical length screening was found to have a cervical length less than 25 millimeters. And then finally, those who might benefit from an exam-indicated cerclage would be patients who are in that pre- or periviable time period who might be coming in without symptoms of pain, rupture, but found to have some amount of dilation. We know that women who have dilation of three, four, five centimeters with prolapsing membranes might not benefit as much from an exam indicated cerclage, and it would be beneficial to have more evidence in terms of who ultimately would be a candidate for this group. So Jen, I want to hop back just a second to that ultrasound indicated cerclage group. What about, because we just talked about progesterone, um, and I know that Again, progesterone intramuscularly is indicated just for those folks who have had a prior spontaneous preterm birth. But say you're putting in an ultrasound-indicated cerclage, could you add progesterone on top of it? Like maybe there's some benefit there? That's a great question. And actually, there's not great evidence that they have any kind of additive effect. It might not hurt for patients who want, quote, everything done. There's no studies to say that it increases their rate of preterm birth, but right now we don't have great evidence to show that they're additive beneficial interventions. What about some other forms of intervention? So I know that, for example, at our hospital, there was some talk of potentially placing pessaries. Um, has that been shown to be beneficial? Yeah, this is, I think, definitely a potential front line of investigation. Pessaries have been studied in women with singleton gestation, multiple gestation, with and without a history of preterm birth in that population where there's a short cervix identified. And there was one small trial that the practice bulletin referenced where women with an incidentally found short cervix less than 25 millimeters were randomized to pessary versus expectant management between 18 to 22 weeks. And they did see a decreased rate of preterm delivery less than 34 weeks in the pessary group. However, there was a subsequent study called the POP study afterwards that didn't really confirm these studies. So I think for a lot of these interventions, we might be seeing the same pattern as in 72HP where some studies are going to show us a benefit and others might not. And it might be that we need to do further meta-analyses to figure out which subgroups would benefit from different interventions. All right. And I think our final area of controversy corner here, Jennifer, um, I hear lots of different stuff about putting in cerclages for twins and other multiple gestations. What do you know about this group? We know that women with twins, triplets, have a higher innate risk of preterm delivery. We counsel them as such, and they're always asking, well, what can be done to help me make it to term? And right now, unfortunately, it's not 
an area where we have much to offer with great evidence. We actually know that cerclages in women with multiple gestations and a shortened cervix might actually increase their risk of preterm delivery. So that's definitely not a recommendation for now. And progesterone supplementation has not been shown to decrease the risk of preterm delivery in women with multiple gestations neither. There was a Dutch study called the Pro-Twin study that randomized women to with multiple gestations to either pessary or usual obstetrical care, and they also didn't find any differences in neonatal outcomes in those arms. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. I think this has been a really great review of preventing preterm birth and talking about all the different ways of managing patients who've had preterm delivery or shortened cervix. Um, Nick, why don't we go ahead and summarize? Sounds good, Faye. So we started out today talking about preventing preterm birth, and we started out, as we always do, with why this is important and what are the risk factors. Again, we all know why it's important. We've all seen it clinically. We want to prevent preterm birth to reduce the risks of prematurity of these infants. Risk factors overall, again, like anything in obstetrics, include prior preterm birth. Other associated factors include chronic illness, infections such as UTI pyelonephritis or periodontal disease, inflammatory conditions, prior cervical excisions, um, and behavioral factors including low pre-pregnancy weight, smoking, substance use, and a short interpregnancy interval. Screening for preterm delivery really comes down to your transvaginal ultrasound, which is more reliable and reproducible compared to your transabdominal ultrasounds. And you should be doing screening on patients who have a history of preterm delivery. So these patients should have cervical screening starting between 14 to 16 weeks every two weeks, unless the cervix is shortened to less than three centimeters, then these screenings should be changed to every week. In terms of universal screening, ACOG currently recommends considering universal screening for everybody between 18 to 24 weeks um, with a transvaginal ultrasound in asymptomatic women with singleton gestation. We then moved on to the wacky and wonderful world of progesterone supplementation. Um, and there are a couple different places where we think about progesterone. One is the use of intramuscular progesterone, which we talked a lot about the controversy surrounding with the MISE trial and then the subsequent prolonged trial, which was recently published. But at least as of now, the recommendations are the use of intramuscular progesterone weekly starting at 16 weeks in patients who have had a prior history of spontaneous preterm birth before 37 weeks. ACOG and SMFM endorse a shared decision-making model while we're awaiting the FDA's final recommendations for the use of IM progesterone. As for vaginal progesterone, for those who have been identified to have a shortened cervix, incidentally less than 20 millimeters, 200 milligrams of vaginal progesterone nightly is recommended. We then moved on to cerclage, and Dr. Ding broke this down for us very nicely to talk about history-indicated, ultrasound-indicated, and exam-indicated cerclage. History-indicated cerclages should be given to patients who have a history of painless cervical dilation in their second trimester, and this should be placed around 12 weeks of gestation. Ultrasound-indicated cerclage include patients who have a history of preterm delivery less than 34 weeks, who have a screen on their transvaginal ultrasound of a cervical length less than 25 millimeters. And finally, for exam-indicated cerclages, this should be given to patients who had advanced cervical dilation, and this is also known as a rescue or emergency cerclage. We then touched on some controversy corner within the world of cerclages and preventing preterm birth. We first touched on pessaries, um, which we don't have any convincing evidence for yet, um, and then multiple gestations as well, um, which 
Likewise, we don't have any convincing evidence yet, but may actually have some evidence of harm. So it's important to talk with your kind of local context about your decision-making regarding the placement of cerclages or using other technologies for the prevention of preterm birth in these populations. All right. I think that brings us to the end of our Preventing Preterm Birth episode. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show with us. Thank you so much, guys. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy our show, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. You can give us some love and we'll send you some swag. If you need some adjunct learning materials for this show and any of our other shows, go on to our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction, a suggestion, or just want to say hello to us personally, email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. And if you're going to APCO Faculty Development Seminar in January in Bonita Springs, Florida, Nick and I will be there giving a workshop on how to create your very own medical podcast. We hope to see you there. <laughs>